0: This is The Global Gambit. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top tier academics, journalists, and policymakers seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit with me, your host Piotr, uh, and my special guest for this episode, Eleanor. On Friday, July 8th, a tragic and arguably seismic event happened in the tragic and un- incomprehensible assassination of pr- former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan. Shinzo Abe was someone who, in many eyes, was an influential character arguably someone who was able to br- bring the term Indo-Pacific to the forefront a term that is now ubiquitous in many foreign policy circles and policy making uh, individuals many people look at him as being someone who was able to improve relations with India and draw attention to the ever growing belligerency of the CCP in the Southeast Asian Pacific but then on the other hand Shinzo Abe was also seen to be a de facto example of the neoliberal economic order entertaining policies such as quantitative easing uh, and other things that many people felt unnecessarily grew the debt and therefore uh, economic instability long term of the Japanese economy. Matters like this, including the legacy that Shinzo Abe will leave behind, will be uh, on the minds of many, including my special guests for this episode. Eleanor Shiero hughes is, uh, is an expert on East Asian, Asian uh, topics, a writer, a policy analyst across the Indo-Pacific. Uh, she's written an article on Shino Abiy's Tywin legacy, which actually, as of only in March, was an interview with the man himself for Hudson Institute. Eleanor, I'm very glad to have you with us. Um, we still need to do that lunch, I believe. And, uh, you know, we actually need to get around to meeting in person, considering the amount of discussions we've had. Uh, welcome to The Global Gambit.
1: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Pyotr. I'm happy to be here and uh, appreciate your very
0: kind introduction. Thank you. No, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, your your background is fascinating. Um, So I think the best place to start really is, could you take us through exactly what what do we know, but also what we don't know about the motivations, the events, uh, and generally sort of the broader picture of what happened on Friday with the the former Prime Minister?
1: Sure, um, I can try my best. There is so much there is to unpack. um, So as not to confuse the audience and even myself, to some extent, I will Try to insert probably the most salient points, as in um, as well as maybe even a bit of a personal anecdote, as in as in where I was and how I found out about this tragic death of Prime Minister Abe. For me, since I was in um, Washington D.C., I found out that when Prime Minister Abe was speaking in Nara, which is an old capital of Japan, uh, for a political campaign, and then all of a sudden, um, a man from behind—I don't remember how far he was, but within the vicinity—shot. Um, um, Prime Minister Abe, uh, both in the chest and neck, I believe. Security detail was not as heavy as that, as you may see um, with uh, politicians around the United States, at least. Um, that's a whole other topic that we could talk about even if you like. And then he was airlifted to a local hospital um, where he was pronounced dead, I believe three or four hours later. In the meantime, while all that was going on, of course, Prime Minister Kishida, he flew back to Tokyo. I cannot remember at the moment where he was at at the time, but he did speak to the press about um, how this incident is obviously condemnable. Uh, but at the same time, the other the reason why this is also noteworthy is because today Japan did have its elections. So. All of this is against the backdrop of um, elections of the upper parliamentary house and so Prime Minister Abe to his death was you know campaigning for someone who was a part of um, what's now what's known as the LDP or the Liberal Democratic Party and yeah so I mean that's the very basics of what happened who perpetrated this I mean we are still learning bits and pieces of who this man is but um, what I can tell you is that was Titsuya, Yama, I'll have to look up the last name later. But in any case, he was a 41-year-old man who was formerly part of the Japanese Maritime um, Self-Defense Forces, I believe. Um, he used to work in Kyoto in a factory, but but when this all happened, he was already unemployed. From what I've heard, I think one of his co-workers spoke out and said he was relatively quiet. Um, and then from, I think, his neighbors, there may have been times where uh, he they heard some sort of noise. The apartment complex then said to like be quiet about it or something like that. Um, I have to do a lot more reading, like I said, Piotr and uh, to the audience. There's still so much to unpack as to the optics behind this attack, as well as the motivations. But what we can't, we do know so far is that one of the motivations it sounds like behind um, Prime Minister Abbas, uh death is the fact that Uh, Perhaps the attacker believed that um, Prime Minister Abe was associated with some sort of religious organization, which I still believe is still remains unnamed by the Nara. He
0: said the term specific, uh, he said the term specific organization which, well, that's about as vague as you can get.
1: Yeah, um, I don't think there's an actual name. I don't think the um, the general public is aware of the actual name of the organization yet. I think there's quite a bit of more um, investigating on the uh, law enforcement's end as well. So it sounded like the attacker's mother, uh, at least in his eyes, um, seemed some sort of wronged of some sort. Like I said, we're still, tr- I think the authorities are still trying to unpack a lot of this. Um, and I was talking to my Japanese relatives about this this morning as well. So we don't know if, for example, if she knowingly uh, provided money to this religious organization and then was deceived or was deceived from the start, I think that is a distinction worth making. The, I think the other troubling part, besides the fact that Prime Minister Abe was killed, was the fact that, you know, Japan is traditionally known as a very safe society from a crime standpoint, particularly when it comes to guns. You know, um, Japan doesn't have like a second amendment like the way the United States does. And there was only one crime in, last year that involved a gun. So this is pretty unprecedented. Um, I So I think the Jap- you know, Japanese people are quite shocked not only about Prime Minister Abe's death, but as well as the use of a handmade gun. And I did see a headline, I've yet to read the piece, but it sounds like there's a possibility that this handmade gun however it was made, it was easily assembled. It could have been made easily, if that makes sense. And then I guess the last point is that um, I also read that the um, perpetrator also thought about using a bomb as well. So um, like I said, there's still so much more to unpack in coming days and weeks, Um, but I I will end there um, so that Piotr can answer
0: more or ask more questions. No, I I think that's a really good, um, you know, you've done a good uh, synopsis there and Yamagami, uh, is his, yes, that's uh, right his yamagami yamagami with...
1: that's right thank you
0: yeah, Yamegami Tatsuya, uh he was um frustrated quote with the former prime minister and targeted Abe with the intention of killing him is what he uh was the po- supposedly saying to to police that uh, apprehended him uh and he was intending to 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 kill the the former prime minister. Uh he pulled a, ba- a weapon from his bag and just began firing without sort of any uh I don't think he had any um specific sort of firearm training so to speak. Uh, and it was the first uh, major shooting from what I understand in ninety years of um of japan's you know uh, history as you say there's a very very Strict uh, rules on gun ownership—one of the lowest and uh, highest in the world in terms of strictness—but also extremely low rates of gun crime. So this is something that has particularly shocked uh, the Japanese society, and it was um, current Prime Minister's uh, Kishida's comments uh, yesterday today, you know, saying that this will be absolutely, you know, heavy-handedly dealt with—the the, the the tough response that he has come out with—that I think has also made people sit up and 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 take notice as well. But in the broader sense, and I am curious for your take on this, do you think that there may have been any um, motivation from this? What's the general sentiment in Eastern Asia, given what's happening in the United States with uh, their domestic situation, the shooting in Denmark that we've seen? Uh, and generally, this sort of this seems to be a bit of a a broader, not in sort of some overwhelmingly uh, seismic uh, level, but definitely a notable few events involving firearms and fatal shootings. Uh, do you think that that's had any any element to play in this
1: that's that's a good question um i've not been asked that yet but personally um i personally don't think there's a huge or really a major correlation between um gun violence in other countries like you mentioned about denmark um there was one in highland park illinois I wasn't terribly far from there um the day before the 4th of july um very sorry for all the victims and families, as well as well uh, friends of all those who perished during Highland shooting, as well as Copenhagen and other recent gun violence incidents all around the world. But I do think one thing I should have made clear, which I, I guess I indirectly made it clear, but as well as you did, but um, this incident was clearly premeditated. I mean, you know, Yamagata Tetsuya, he attended um, previous campaign rallies of which Abe spoke at so, I mean, and it you know, one of the interesting things about this whole incident, at least at this point in time, and is that, um, you know, originally, like I mentioned, uh, Titsia san he wanted to target the leader of whatever religious organization that he had a grudge against because of her, his mother's relationship uh, of some sort with it, right? The thing is, so there's that. But yet then he resorted to also killing the prime minister. And so I listened to another talk. That was in Japanese. It's quite interesting, I will say, um, as a side note, to um, be uh, you know be able to hear the Japanese perspectives in Japanese, and I, I will explain that um, momentarily as to why, for the purpose of um, Abe's um, killing. But I will say, like there, one person commented that there's so there's that motivation about killing the leader of whatever religious organization um, Yamagata San had a, um, had a grudge with. But then on the other hand, he then resorted to killing Prime Minister Abe by virtue of perhaps guilt, a possible, uh, you know, alleged guilt by association. And so this um, whoever commented on this said, why that quick, why be so haste in making that kind of um, movement when um, the, the person that he was originally targeting was a leader of a religious organization? So there is that bit of a discrepancy, perhaps. And I think it's, of course, you know, the onus is on law enforcement and other authorities who are involved in the investigation to figure out, you know, connect those dots for, of course, to ensure that this incident never happens again to political figures in general in Japan, of course, to make it so that, you know, Japan is still known as, you know, a relatively safe society with, you know, very low um, gun crimes as well as to also ensure that justice is served against for Abe's family, his colleagues, and for the people of Japan in general.
0: Fascinating. Thank you very much for that. I, um, I didn't know that level of uh, intricate detail, which is why I'm glad you're here. I want to pivot now to this article, this interview that you had with the very man himself, well, best part of four months ago now. So, I mean, firstly, from a personal point of view, what were your takeaways? What what did you feel about sort of interviewing the prime minister, former prime minister? Uh, and, and secondly, sort of obviously attached to that is how did you... How did you feel about some of his tape from what i from what i take um can see from reading it you know he he was very Explicit in in it stating his continued fears about china's um aspirations with the South china Sea uh, and the fact that he you know this could then transcend into that with taiwan and and generally sort of where does it end sort of situation so'd love to hear your personal but also your sort of policy slash professional takes on on your on your interview and and what and, and the subsequent article that you wrote
1: sure, thank you. um I can go a little bit i'll go a little bit back before this interview and just talk about. My experiences in writing in general, just because Abe is an important part of it. I mean, my first article that I ever wrote was about Abe. It was when, um, you know, for those of you who may know, um, our most recent emperor—not the sitting one, but his father, Akihito—he decided to abdicate. Um, It was the first time in 200 plus years an emperor actually abdicated. Usually, um, and for then a new era to begin in Japan. Um, So. Abe played a huge role in, for example, in naming the name of the era, because it's weird, you know, from a Japanese society perspective for there to be a living emperor and for him to, ex- in this case, him to experience the naming of a new era. So I wrote about how uh, Prime Minister Abe, um, would he be able to bring closure to the Japanese abduction issue uh, between Japan and North Korea? My interest in Abe and Japanese policy proceeds that piece from June 2019. and in this, At that time, I was very interested in Japan-North Korea relations because I lived in Japan when some developments unfolded between and diplomacy occurred between Tokyo and Pyongyang, which resulted in um, Pyongyang actually allowing Japanese abductees who were uh, taken away in the late '70s, early '80s to return to Japan in 2002 or 2003. I feel bad. I all of a sudden I cannot remember the year. So I'll fast forward a little bit. So I wrote about North Korea. Still, you know, Japan is my enduring research interest. Part of it because of my heritage and experience living in Japan, but also it's uh, you know kind of this. Piotr noted its saliency in regional affairs as it pertains to the Indo-Pacific, but, but as well as its global standing, particularly since Abe took office. And I'll say particularly since he took office for a second time because um i think some people may not know just in case he was in office for a year from 2006 to 2007 but then decided uh, to leave because of a uh, illness and then he uh took you know spent 5 years not being prime minister to then return in 2012 to then leave again in 2020 because of i believe the same illness uh, basically and then, so in 2020, um, when Taiwanese President um, Tsai Ing-wen was re-elected for a second term, she I will note she was the first uh, female president to be elected for a second term. That really caught my eye, and it really made me realize that I'm very interested in Taiwan. Why is this, you know, it's such an interesting place, area to study from a, I guess, Asia policy standpoint. And at some point, I think it will be very relevant for the purpose of Peace, civility, and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific region, and increasingly now, as many countries are concerned, um, that of the world. And um, and I eventually realized, well, I'm very interested in Japan. I'm also very interested in Taiwan. Why not, you know, pursue some sort of um, research, whether it be for work, whether it be for schooling, on Japan-Taiwan relations? You know, in 2021, after Abe had left, and then Prime Minister uh, Suga Yoshihide took office and made first state visit to the White House, or actually, sorry, it was Biden's first time inviting a foreign leader in April 2021. Because, you know, keep in mind, um, in person diplomacy is very limited because of COVID. And I would say at least very least the first half of 2021, there was a Taiwan mention in the joint statement about, you know, the need to maintain peace and prosperity, uh, or sorry, peace and stability in along the Taiwan streets. There was the last time there's such mention of Taiwan's peace and stability between an American leader and that of a Japanese leader was back in 1969 with uh, then former Prime Minister Japanese Prime Minister Sato Saku, and in in the U.S. Uh, case uh, Richard Nixon. So it was quite unprecedented, garnered so much attention among um, American. Uh, Policy analysts, Asia policy analysts, probably even so that of Japan. Although um, my perception, my exposure, and I guess like perceptions of Japan are a little bit more limited from a for a geographical reason at the very least. So then I became even more interested in you know Taiwan vis-a-vis within the per, within the context of the U.S. Japan alliance as well as Taiwan Japan on a bilateral relations standpoint. Of course, you know Japan does not have official. Diplomatic relations with um, Taiwan. It did once upon a time, as did so many other countries. Um, but it no longer does. It has official diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, and it will be commemorating 50 years, by the way, between Japan and China um, as of September 29 of 2022. So after I finished my first in-person semester um, at Georgetown, um, you know, I was done writing finals, and I was like, you know what? I want to write something. And then I thought, well. Abe garnered quite a bit of attention uh, in the month of December for basically saying that Japanese security interests are tethered to that of Taiwan. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of attention about Abe and Taiwan, but not necessarily within the context of Abe, perhaps despite no longer being prime minister, um, still being very influential in driving the course of Japan-Taiwan relations. So I was quite interested in, you know, writing a piece about it. I originally, you know, thought about writing about, you know, this on my own. But then, you know, somebody um, in this case, uh, my friend Riley Walters from the Hudson Institute thought, you know, kind of thought the same thing, actually, but in a separate capacity at first. And then we're like, well, let's write this together. And then it turned into um, an interview with Abe himself, Um, of course, not in person. Um, He was in. Uh, Japan and the both of us were in the United States. So I will now go to the interview, um, which I will say um, this was before the Ukraine war. I think where we if had we talked to Abe himself after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, perhaps his answers would have been a bit different. But because I will also say that um, Abe also made quite a bit of news after Ukraine's invasion about Taiwan, as well as the nuclear sharing as well. But that is a slightly separate subject. But as far as the interview is concerned, um, you know, I'm always going to be appreciative of how candid he was with his answers open to talking to me as a graduate student. Uh, You know, I never envisioned that I would, you know, start my uh, time at Georgetown to be able to then complete and say at the same time that I once spoke to uh, the prime minister, I'm very sad to say, of course, that, um, you know, we won't be able to have an in-person interaction or any of us will. But on the other hand, I really deeply appreciate his insights and that I could be, you know, me and uh, Riley and I'm sure, you know, a host of others who write about Japan-Taiwan relations were able to spark this kind of conversation about Taiwan's saliency within Japanese security and foreign policy agenda as well as that of the United States and that of other polities around the Indo-Pacific and the world at large. Um, but as far as his comments are concerned, Abe was never, you know, it was not close to engagement with China. I do want to make that clear, because even though he became, he vocalized his um, opinions about Taiwan, particularly after he left office, he had more bandwidth to do so from a political standpoint. That doesn't mean he doesn't want relations to improve with China. You know, I think that's something that should be made clear. And despite his, you know, criticism, he knows that, you know, he basically said that um, Xi Jinping is consolidating his power base, and he's no longer hiding, hiding his ambitions towards Taiwan. That doesn't mean that like, you know, it was impossible for Japan and China to have a more stable footing in terms of their bilateral relations going forward. Um, I'll end there to see if uh, what kind of reaction I sparked from you, Piotr. I'm sure that was a lot. So,
0: No, it's, it, I really like the, um, the personal journey that you share uh, with our listeners, you know, both live and on the podcast, because it, it gives us uh, much more insights into you. You know, you and I, I think, are of a similar age. We're sort of in the earlier phases of our careers, maybe, if I could get away with saying that. Uh, And and I I think no, that's fair, totally fair. Bit, you know, At least for myself. I will
1: let you speak for yourself. But yes, you are right in saying that about
0: myself. Oh, OK, well, well, you know, uh, I like to think I'm further ahead than I am. But, you know, we've got we've got to we've got to start somewhere. And, and uh, you know, I, I really, really appreciate that. And to be honest with you, part of me is really happy for you. But another part of me is kind of envious that you got to interview such a figure uh, so soon and uh, and make your make a mark. You know, I hope I can do something similar, although I don't really want to do that with Boris Johnson, if I'm honest. So, well, yeah, but we'll leave that there for now. Okay, so Eleanor, um, given that personal experience that you've had both professionally and um, in person or uh, over the internet, I suppose I want to go into the actual a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of the of the uh, geopolitical ramifications from this. Um, firstly, starting with the uh, Japanese South Korean relationship. Uh, you know, we've had Prime Minister Kishida replace uh, take over in what just uh, about seven eight months he's been in power now, I think, and uh, you know he's quite different from. Abe, uh, in in many ways he's a he's a long standing diplomat um and i think has a bit more of a hawkish view perhaps about uh regional affairs uh, i don't know if you would agree with me in that sort of assessment um but given the south korean japanese relationship is not on the best footing what do you think the um, the death, the assassination of Abby is going to have for that? Can we, do you think that there's going to be an improvement from the South Korean, more more sort of um, uh, understanding, empathy towards the the fact that the Japanese are, are going to be shocked by this? Or do you think it's going to be business as usual and pretty, um, pretty real politique and, and a bit cold?
1: So that's a, that's a very good question. You know, I will um, add first of all that South Korea Japan bilateral relations isn't an area that I look as closely as, like for example, as of recently Japan Taiwan relations. You know, I've read news that the new president uh, South Korean president Yoon Suk Yeol will um, visit the Japanese embassy in Korea to pay his respects to. Prime Minister Abe, in light of his death, I believe today, or maybe he already did, um, maybe he already did visit. Um, I, at the very least, I think you mentioned realpolitik. I do think that perhaps, you know, one even before, uh, well before Abe's death, when Yoon suk did take office, I think people felt more positive about the fact that maybe Japan, South Korea uh, might be on a more stable footing um, in regards to their bilateral relationship. Part of it perhaps being because Yoon suk is of the conservative party and I don't think if I remember correctly I don't think he has like a very extensive political background so with that perhaps might give at least at the very least give the impression that he may have a more fresh perspective and be open minded about the state of um Japan South Korea bilateral relations I do I you know I will say I mean during Abe's second tenure as prime minister um you know Japan and South Korea did ex- you know, experience a you know an adhere in their relationship for reasons varying from historical grievances, um, territorial disputes as well. That but that was also long standing between um, what is it Tokto in Korea and Takeshima uh, Island. That's what's called in Japanese. And then of course, economic, there were also economic implications as well. Um, and that also almost led to the termination of the intelligence sharing pact called ANCHISOMIA. Uh, Ultimately, that did not happen. I'm also saying, thankfully, from an American uh, perspective, that did not happen. But I don't know to what extent. I think it's very much too early to forecast to what extent, at least for this question, to what extent Abbas Death will, I guess, chart the course of South Korea-Japan relations going forward, as well as South Korea-Japan-U.S. relations going forward, because there is a trilateral dynamic there that's also very critical if you think about the North Korea issue um, when it comes to nuclear weapons, for example. But at the very least, when it comes to bilateral relations um, between the two, uh, South Korea and Japan, I'm sorry, in this case, uh, I do think for a security stamp, um, the two leaders were most more likely than not see eye to eye when it comes to North Korea, for example, perhaps. And it sounds like Yoon seems more enthused to incorporate Korea, South Korea, into the free and open Indo-Pacific um framework and you know make it so that Korea is more involved in regional frameworks, whether it be on the economic standpoint, diplomatic, political, etc. So we will see what happens. Um, it is far too early to say to what extent Abe's death and, and even just with that had he not died, to what extent Um, There's promise in improving relations between the two countries. But I do think, to your point, I I understand that you're asking this because this is a space worth looking at for anyone who's interested in the Indo-Pacific region. I hope that it is of promise, though, ultimately.
0: Indeed, indeed, I I, I concur. But, um, you know, I was going to go from south to north uh, of the Koreas, but you've you've touched upon that. So maybe we can um, encompass the sort of file of North Korea with the relations of Japan to Russia now uh, given the events in ukraine the war in ukraine uh russia has suddenly decided it's it's a wise idea um to get uh, belligerent provocative whatever you want to to say stir stuff up uh with japan over the kuril islands now abe was quite instrumental uh, as far as i can tell from Improving the relationship between the two countries over the islands and actually almost seeking the establishment of a finally a final peace deal um, or at least some kind of secession of hostilities and tension over the matter. all of that has regressed because of Japan imposing the sanctions and other uh, you know responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. so given Russia is so integral to the file of North Korea as well. Um, and Japan, and just the whole sort of element, the sort of triangular relationship regarding North Korea, if that makes sense. What about the the, the Russian Japanese file now um, with the events in Abay's uh, assassination? Or you don't think it's going to have much of an, a play at all?
1: Another good question. You're full of good questions today, and it sounds like always. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm gotta
0: I'm put you on the spot a little
1: bit. No, it's okay. Um, it's it's good to um, you know, in terms of uh, I guess intellectual curiosity. It's necessary these days, right? Um, for the purpose of being observe, observing um, Indo Pacific affairs, for the purpose of this conversation, I will say, you know, I remember when the Ukraine war was very new. And I remember, I believe it was Tobias Harris who um, spoke at one of the think tank events who said that, um, you know, Abe basically spent 10 years um, trying to improve relations with Russia. And then after the Ukraine war, it took Kishida, the current prime minister, 10 days to undo 10 years of work that Abe did. I, I think that's a great way of putting the current state of Japan-Russia um, bilateral relations, of course, because of the war in Ukraine um, or Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. I don't think Abe's death will single handedly change that course either. I did notice that uh, Putin did send some sort of condolences, I believe, to um, Abe's wife, um, Akiye. To I think his family as well about his death and that um, he was yeah I think um, yeah the Kremlin I believe did say like they're you know they condemned the attack on the former prime minister and whatnot so I mean you know the interesting thing as sad as of course Abe's death is you know it he got so much condolences from people that you know depending on how observant you are of. Indo-Pacific Asia policy, whatever you want to call it, you know, he got, you know, Abe himself got condolences from countries that have frosty relations with Japan or other way around, as in, you know, in this case, of course, Xi Jinping, as well as Russia's uh, Putin. But I guess in short to answer your question, Piotr, I don't think, you know, given Abe has laid the um, groundwork for the free and owned Indo-Pacific vision, as well as Japan, really, I would say being a thought leader in terms of regional dynamics and even global to some extent, I don't think that Abe's death will change how Kichida approaches Russia so long as Russia doesn't change its level of aggression vis-a-vis Ukraine or elsewhere in Europe.
0: Mm, Interesting. I wasn't expecting that. Japan's relationship with Russia, I think, is is um, more nuanced, or at least not quite as explicitly the same as we would say maybe the Anglosphere uh, or, or part of much of Western Europe in that regard. So I want to shift this over a little bit now. We've discussed China at length, but... Obviously, I want to go back and and talk about it a little bit more because interesting article from the Diplomat I was reading the other day discussing, you know, international reactions. Uh, And one of them was basically emphasising that the initial response from the foreign ministry, the foreign minister was asked um, about his reaction. And the Chinese actually came out. Zhao, the spokesperson for the foreign ministry, said, you know, we are... Shocked, quote, um, by the, quote, unexpected incidents. We are following the updates and hope that former Prime Minister uh, Abe will be out of danger and recover soon. Uh, we'd like to extend his sympathies to his family. This is before he um, he passed away. So very interesting that the Chinese uh, Communist Party were taking a line of, you know, not critical, not accusational, not sort of like rubbing their hands with glee. But then... And, and many of the main media outlets, Xia uh, Hao, People's Daily, China Daily, which is an English-language version, uh, ran pretty neutral reports uh, just simply covering the uh, the events. Notably, of course, uh, the Global Times, which is state-owned, stayed true to our arguably it's nationalistic uh, role as a tabloid and ran a controversial commentary emphasising, quote, that Japan's right-wing forces may use this incident to push forward the trend of conservative transformation in Japanese politics, uh, which I thought was quite... Um, well revealing of that uh, and they grew a lot of widespread criticism on twitter when they posted such a thing uh which was actually accompanied by a graphic image of uh abby lying on the pavement could see his face and covered in sort of people around him curious about you know what you think about the um the Chinese reaction, but obviously um, President Xi Jinping, has, or Xi Jinping hasn't released the statement, or he hasn't made his comments ex- explicitly known. What do you think about the the, the the upper echelons of the Chinese Party reaction, or just view of this? Do, do you think it's a welcome reprieve? They're gonna they've lost a, a very vocal critic of theirs. Um, And I just want to bring in this because we had a conversation with um, Dan Markey of uh, the USIP or United States Institute for Peace about India, which is uh, part of the podcast. And listeners can go and check that out. It's episode five. But, uh, you know, he was also making reference to that. He even mentioned about President Abe and uh, Prime Minister Abe, excuse me, and the the strong relationship uh, he had had in trying to garner Japanese-Indian relations vis-a-vis China's uh, sort of, well, antagonistic action so just curious for your take on those those few different points uh sorry there's a lot to unpack there if you want me to clarify but uh it's all sort of blended in so i'm just curious for your 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 hot take
1: that's that's a very uh big question um somewhat May have someone answered it earlier, but I may have. I don't know. We'll we'll see. I'll let you agree or disagree with me here. But at the very least, I did see um, a tweet. Somebody, like I think, posted a screenshot of CCTV where a female and male uh, Chinese reporter said basically that Xi Jinping and I think his wife sent some sort of condolences to Abe's family, um, and I think. Uh, maybe even extended it to the people of Japan in general. But at the very least Abe and his family. He may not have personally like sent some sort of telegram. I think Putin did. Um I may have to look that up later, but I do believe Putin did. I don't know if Xi Jinping did. But in any case, at the very least, I think Beijing has to, you know, play it very carefully. The Beijing um the Chinese uh, government has to play it very carefully, partially as I mentioned earlier, because you know, Japan and China will Commemorate 50 years of diplomatic relations in September, and so I don't think anything major will, like, policy change, you know, fundamentally will come out of that. One thing I have not uh, mentioned yet uh, when it comes to the Japanese foreign policy. Is the fact that you know this year, for the first time since twenty thirteen, Japan will unveil its new national security strategy. I'm sure um, you know it will be very different. Not just for China, of course. You know, talking about Russia, talking about um, the Korean Peninsula, talking about Taiwan, and else all the other dynamics that we have yet to talk about or that has yet to be discussed in general in regards to Indo Pacific and the world at large. I'm sure that the Chinese Chinese government will anticipate that um, you know Japan is alarmed by its flexing of its muscles in the region, whether it be the South China Sea, whether it be economic coercion against, you know, for example, Australia. So I don't think that openly that, um, you know, Xi Jinping, the Chinese government would openly welcome what happened to Prime Minister Abe. You know, perhaps I'm being, you know, trying to see the better of the, you know, be more empathetic and thinking maybe on a human level, they wouldn't do that to, you know, Japan's, you know, uh, longest serving prime minister in modern Japanese history. Um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, Prime Minister Abe wasn't just hawkish on China and end of story during his time. He wanted to engage with China. He took a state visit to China in 2018, where I think fa- close to 500, I want to say, Japanese businessmen accompanied him. And that really showcases the importance of that the Japanese business community has had on uh, Japan-China relations in general, the Chinese economy does depend and has historically depended on, you know, Japanese business presence and investments um, that a lot of the, of course, the dynamics and, you know, the supply chain matters, a lot of it did change, of course, in light of COVID-19 for various reasons. But, you know, and the before, right up until COVID-19 happened, you know, Xi Jinping was uh, slated to make a state visit to Tokyo during the zenith of um, Japan's cherry blossom season, that of course um, they had to cancel those plans because of the um, introduction of um, COVID nineteen. Unfortunately, for the purpose of the state visit, and of course from then on, with you know China's um, handling of COVID nineteen, varying other reasons, you know, there's been a lot more talk about not necessarily um, you know keeping all of the uh, investments in supply chains in China, but rather some people call it French shoring, some people call it um, diversification and French shoring, or tapering uh, tapering, de- decoupling of some sort from China. But you know, I think the way the Japanese approach it is China's too big to fail. And I do think from China's perspective that you know given the geographic proximity, of course, to Japan and other way around Japan's proximity to China, I do believe that the bilateral relations are too big to fail, and even with Abe's death, that doesn't change that fact. And I don't think that I think personally, if you know Xi Jinping or anyone closely associated to him were to openly uh, welcome um, Abe's death, and of course, in the way that, particularly in the way that it happened, of course, that would you know send shock. You know, his death is already sending shockwaves to Japan and the world at large. I don't think they want to exacerbate the frosty relations that currently the the two countries are currently facing. I hope that answers your question.
0: It was a very um, broad and um, poorly framed question, let's be honest. But um, uh, I think it did. And uh, I appreciate your tremendous stab at it. All right, Eleanor, thank you so much for entertaining my broad array of questions. It's been um, a whirlwind of different things. I guess my last one for you before we go over to uh, one or two audience uh, questions is, So where do we go from here? What is the... What is the overarching um play now? I mean, largely speaking, Abiy was uh, you know, he 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 firmly positioned Japan as a key node, I guess you'd say, in the coalition to push back against China. Uh it was him who came up behind he was a mastermind, you could arguably say, of the quad in many ways, and this whole Indo-Pacific concept, which the Americans have basically adopted as centerpieces of their strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And you could largely say, I think, that the the relations between China and Japan have been like in a deep freeze, maybe. Uh, and there have been attempts to thaw, as you sort of alluded to. But you know, within gone and such an iconic figure, longest serving and 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 so vocal. Do you, do you, what do you think about that now? Is this a real uh, threat to China, Japan longer term, uh strategically, geo-economically in the region, or or you know, the country's going to be able to continue despite it losing such a prominent voice and uh, and figure?
1: You know, first of all, um, you know, Abe is the product of politicians from his family, his father, his grandfather. Um, he himself has no children, although his brother, Kishi Nobuo, is c- the current uh, defense minister for the Kishida administration. Um, you know, From so from the bloodline standpoint, we have yet to see, of course, if ever, if um, Kishi, his brother, would ever take some sort of leadership beyond the current capacity he's at. And I do know that um, there were parliamentary elections and there might be, there is a possibility that Kishida might take this as an opportunity in the near future to reshuffle the cabinet we shall see if that means that kishi of course who is not aligned with that of kishida's faction could be um, ousted of some sort or that those who were closely associated with Abe. so from that standpoint that is an area i would say is worth watching for anybody interested in J- japanese politics in general but that but, but the reason why i mention that is because um, this isn't time of mourning for japan you know everybody in japan you know from what i've heard I've been on the phone so much this weekend and, you know, talking about Abe this whole weekend, you know, some people are terribly shocked and they are going traveling all the way to where he was um, shot in Nara to lay flowers. Some people are going to his home in the Shibuya district of Tokyo to pay their respects. But on the other hand, not terribly far in some parts of Tokyo, for example, I saw. Um, It was a very ordinary day, as in yesterday, I should say, uh, Saturday. Everybody's handling all this different. But I think the government, you know, as Kishida made it clear with uh, President Biden when he talked to him on the phone, is that this act of violence will not single-handedly, you know, shake um, Japan's ability to conduct a democratic process, which in this case was the elections, which, um, as uh, we've talked about earlier, um, is now done. But on the other hand, you know, I think Japan, the Japanese leadership is going to have a, take a very close look at, for example, as we noted earlier about the security detail behind uh, that led to, unfortunately, or the lack thereof, I'm sorry, of security that let perhaps played a, a contributing role in Abe's death. It's, you know, like I said, it's quite early in the investigation to, you know, what other domestic priorities um, there are to ensure that this doesn't happen again. So it's, so much of this—it's so early, too early for the purpose of Abe's death and how it may or may not correlate correlate to Japan's ability to project its influence on all fronts in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, like I said earlier, the national security strategy is yet to be unveiled. I have no idea—it's you know it, to what extent or if this will play a role in the what the strategy may look like. I like to assume that there's definitely some sort of draft already because. Um, it's, I, I've heard that it's going to be unveiled later this summer or in the fall, but we'll see where that goes. Um, that's just me speculating there a little bit. But, you know, I, I do think that Japan, fundamentally speaking, this will not inhibit Japan's ability to, to be a significant player in the region. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned, uh, I can't remember what point, that Kishida's style is a little different, I think, you know, but he was a former foreign minister, and he is definitely very competent in what he is doing. Actually, I think a lot of people um, are quite impressed with his leadership um, in terms of, from a regional standpoint. I mean, he spoke at the uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies, or otherwise known as the IISSS Law Dialogues, as well as speaking in Europe and the UK a few months back. He's traveled to Southeast Asia. I mean, some of this, of course, a lot of it could be credited to Abe, like I, like you were saying, laying the groundwork for being an architect of the FOIP vision, Free and Open Indo-Pacific, as well as being like an author of the um, Quad. Um, and that is a reason why, you know, for the first time, I believe, the Quad members, the leaders of the Quad uh, actually issued a joint statement in honor of Abe as and, of course, to send deep condolences to Kishida. But, you know, like two things, like I said, It's too early to forecast to what extent this will enable or inhibit Japan from uh, projecting its foreign policy agenda in the way that it wanted to before Abe's death. And I think, but second of all, I don't think fundamentally speaking that this will hamper Japan's ability to do what it has been doing. And I think perhaps for the leadership, you know, maybe part of this is me projecting my hopes, but in line of Abe's death, a lot of people are talking about what is his legacy. And I think, you know, for someone like me who um, is. Uh, an observer of Asia policy, I I do think that the responsibility is on all of us Asia um, watchers or those who are wanting to be in the field, regardless of sector, to make it so that whatever good work he did, despite how polarizing, I will say yes. You know Abe is no perfect figure. I'm not here to you know say that everything he did is good, right? But any but the fundamentally the good work he did, which is to ensure foip in Indo Pacific that there are mini-laterals, such as the Quad. That that good that good work that he did, as well as that of others who worked closely with him, does not um disappear in um both the short term and the long term. I'm I'm very confident that that will not change. And I'm, I'm, I'm leaders from all around the world, even the U.S. leadership, has said the same thing.
0: No, I, I think his legacy will live on. Um, certainly, I think personally for better, but in many eyes for worse, um, you know, and, and his comparative approach to foreign policy to Kushida's is, I mean, Kushida's kept on much of the policies that he introduced, um, or sort of established. And um, uh, I would say that, you know, Abe was um, very influential in the economic area as well in the form of Japan's recovery. But, you know, as I say, there's been this controversiality around the amount of debt that has risen in the post, shall we say, global financial period of the 2010s, which I think is one of the reasons why some people, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's conspiracy, but speculation about why uh, this 41-year-old gentleman may have killed him or, well, assassin or shooter, uh, not gentleman really, uh, did this. Uh, And maybe one of the overarching reasons is the economic systemic, uh, what he feels issues that plague uh japan's economy still um but with that uh, i want to move over to the q a section and with us uh to ask one of the great questions is uh giacomo he's a he's a fantastic uh well hopefully i can say he's a friend of mine uh he's an international lawyer he's fluent in seven languages uh and i think he's got a very interesting question for you Eleanor. so giacomo all yours
2: the of course you're my friend one of my best friends <laughs> good to know <laughs> hopefully he'll come back yes uh, Eleanor thank you so much for this and uh, there is one question that I'm burning to ask is that uh, I know uh Abbe's legacy will live on Abenomics good or bad and of course uh, the quad he was I feel he was the master and creator of the quad Uh, by trying to peel off first in a friendly way, India's non-alignment stance and uh, joining the Indo-Pacific in the US military, in the US strategy now, they even changed from uh, the Pacific to the Indo-Pacific. So one question that I'm burning to ask is, even with Mr. Abe now gone, unfortunately, His allies, didn't they win a supermajority in parliament and now they will finally be able to change Japan's until now pacifist uh, constitution to enable Japan to build a powerful military, not only to defend itself, but also to deter any aggression by we know who. Thank you.
1: Sure. I'll try to take a stab at it. I will say that I have yet to read a lot of the election-related results. Um, I do know that to go into the more nitty-gritty of Japanese domestic politics, we talked about how uh, the shooting um, happened against the backdrop of um, this upcoming parliamentary election in the upper house. As you noted, Giacomo, um, yes, the LDP did win. I think actually uh, voter turnout was, I think, higher and perhaps part of it could be attributed to Abe's death. And um, as I do know, I don't re- I didn't actually check the weather report, but traditionally when, for example, when it's raining in Japan, typically that's a better uh, for the LDP uh, part of it, because the people who truly want to vote, usually that means, you know, the rain won't inhibit them from voting. So usually the LDP and I think the Komeito, the junior partner for the LDP uh, party, uh, they usually are better off. To your point, yes, the LDP did win. Um, I do believe a supermajority. I don't have the numbers, and any of that in front of me. Um, others do, like I said earlier about Tobias Harris, for example. I would look into his tweets and read some of the Japanese media outlets, at least the English versions, because I understand that. I'm sure a lot of you don't um, speak or read Japanese. But um, you know i I wouldn't be so haste in saying that this would undeniably mean that Abe's unfulfilled goal, perhaps of revisioning the constitution in the way that he wanted will happen as you know very quickly I, I I think there are a whole host of domestic considerations as well. I mean, you know, because Abe and Kishida are not of the same political faction first of all um. I don't know if there's going to be bandwidth. Like I said, you know, part of it may depend on the whether or not there is a political or sorry, uh, cabinet reshuffling um, later this year. I'm not like I said, maybe there the national security strategy may be at play as well. Certainly, you know, perhaps the uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine has made it so. At the very least, from a more you know Taiwan perspective, as um, I was in a different podcast earlier this year, main, uh, one of the other guest speakers may know Taiwan, for example, it's harder for them to imagine the, possi- uh, the possibility of ruling out a potential uh, contingency one day. Obviously, I'm not one to forecast when that may or may not happen. But um, on the other hand, I don't know if there is that kind of bandwidth to the point where there will be that kind of revision. I will say... Um, For those of you who don't know, um, I guess the 2015, um, the ability for the Japanese um, self-defense forces to exercise uh, what is now known as collective self-defense was monumental, but it was also met with a lot of internal um, resistance as well. So if if there is such um, a priority, if Kishida makes that a priority, I'm sure despite what's going on in Ukraine, despite what's going on. Um, with um, China's increasing influence in the region. I like to assume that there will be some sort of pushback, whether it be among, at the very least, opposing politicians from other parties, as well as that of the general public. Um, I don't think that, you know, Japan, given what's just happened with Abe's death, I do think that right now is a very much a period of mourning and even a state of confusion, not just among the leadership, but among the Japanese populace as well. Even though some people may go about their day it, the way they may have had Abe not had died. It is a period of confusion, I'm sure, for Japanese people. And and at, re, at the very least, the onus is on the leadership to ensure that no act of violence, um, despite the fact the election may have passed, that no act of violence will hinder Japan's um, ad, uh, democratic profit, pro- progress. I hope that answered your question.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And. Uh... Uh, I feel that was his biggest legacy. And if he is uh, watching anywhere right now from up above, uh, this must be his strongest wish to restore and reinstate Japan's capacity and ability and freedom to defend itself from aggression in the Pacific and uh, elsewhere, a country of 125 a million people, but yet crippled by that constitution where they could not even raise an army.
1: Yes. I mean, even though there might be like political, I guess, like administrative priorities to perhaps make that into a reality, I mean, the other part is, of course, you know, as we've seen with elections, I mean, politicians are ultimately, of course, also beholden to the people. They are, you know, elected by the people. And if the people may not want that, I mean, that, that, that plays into the role of the bandwidth uh, part that I mentioned earlier is that may mean, for example, that people don't want it, but yet politicians want to be elected or re-elected. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of other considerations when it comes to elections. I'm no j- Japanese um, elections expert by any means, but you know, like I said, it, a lot of it is about bandwidth, and it's not necessarily just about the behavior of um, our neighbors, uh, Japan's neighbors, whether it be China, Russia, uh, North Korea, etc. So. I think there's a lot of um, dynamics and variables that are worth considering. Um, but to your point, though, Giacomo, I do think, um, and Pyotr mentioned this earlier, Abenomics, I think, is one thing that he will definitely be remembered for. Um, that itself did not single-handedly alleviate some of the structural issues of Japan's economic woes. But on the other hand, you know, I think some people... <laughs> Um, before Abe uh, died, we're still, you know, considering the possibility that maybe Abe, you know, is keeping himself open to take office once again. Obviously, he never said that explicitly, right? But, you know, think about how much influence, despite no longer being prime minister, he had um, over Japanese politics and even, you know, Japanese diplomacy, whether, you know, as I've written about with Taiwan or elsewhere. So Um, There are a lot of dynamics at play, um, and I think, you know, the onus, like I said earlier, is on, you know, people who are uh, daily observers of Asia policy to um, inform the general public about why, you know, some things such as, you know, whether it be, you know, revising the constitution is much more difficult than meets the eye.
0: Thank you very much, um, Giacomo, for that, Um, and Eleanor, for your question. Uh, your question, your reply, rather. What am I talking about? You're the guest of honor in this episode of the Global Gambit. Um, but with that, I want to probably draw a line under this episode, Eleanor. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to, you know, emphasise to the listeners, both live but also uh, in the subsequent podcast? And you know, take away is there anything that you're releasing in the upcoming weeks, months? Um, but also, where can people find you um, aside from Clubhouse, like on Twitter, or where can they engage with your work?
1: Sure. Uh, thank you. For- first of all, Pyotr, once again, for inviting me. Um, It's, you know, for not just myself, but so many others all around the world. I mean, this has been a very difficult weekend. It's, you know, so many people are still processing the fact that um, Abe is no longer here. And um, like I said, there's still so much to unpack. But, you know, one thing I I did want to mention, but I didn't know where to insert it, was um, I mentioned something about language earlier, like use of words of some sort, you know, one of the, um, and like, you know, using and listening to Japanese perspectives of the um, assassination, but in American outlets and a lot of, I think, English, I'll just say English outlets, there was use of the word assassination. And actually this, the title of this um, episode has that word, right? But, you know, in Japan, um, you know, use of the Japanese word for assassination was this ansatsu, ansatsu. It's not been really used to characterize what happened with Abe. I think that's worth noting i have yet to read the article about uh, by the japan times on actually the peculiar um way in which i think they i think the title of their article is um something about the peculiar way in which um national media or the Japanese media has characterized Abe's death. Oh, yeah. It's called Behind the Japanese Media's Peculiar Reaction to the Murder of Shinzo Abe. It might um, mention that about the assassination part. But when I was in a different room with Japanese speakers about Abe's um, death, yes, they noted that like in Japan, you know, we don't they didn't use the word assassination. And the other thing I think worth noting, I think people some people are wondering why was Abe's security detail? Not as um extensive as that of like U.S. presidents, you know, with Secret Service, right? Unfortunately, there are a lot more shootings. Of course, in the United States, at the very least, than in Japan. You know, when people throw something at you, or sometimes um, in the, a very unfortunate um situation where someone is in a very high level crime area where there could be some sort of gun violence, people a lot of probably more people compared to Japan know how to like you know they duck right like or they say duck as in like try to avoid you know, some, you know, the shooting or whatever. But in Japan, that's not, I don't think instinctual is the right word, but that's not something that Japanese people think first and foremost about. So I think it's interesting just to hear um, the Japanese perspectives of this um, shooting from the Japanese language perspective as well. Um, I do know, like I said, that you were a lot of your listeners, I like to assume don't speak or read Japanese, but I do think um, it is important if you can, to at least, um, if you want to understand more about why this all happened and what may happen going forward? To read um Japanese media out.
0: No, absolutely. Um, thank you for that. You know, the main Asian orientated uh, paper that I read is um South Chinese Morning Post. Although I do read sort of the Diplomat and other things, but they're again from a Western centric or Western based at least. Uh, produced um media but with that i want to thank you ever so much for for this very quite last minute when i reached out to you not long after the events happened uh, to see if you could come on and and you, the level of game you've shown and and get it, diving straight into it with some of my curveball questions as i call them uh has been terrific so really appreciate your time and to everybody listening uh i want to thank you as well be it on clubhouse twitter spaces uh or on the podcast itself uh, we do have some exciting events coming up on twitter spaces on wednesday i'll be hosting hafed al Guel uh, of the foreign policy institute at johns hopkins size to talk about the libyan component to the ukrainian conflict uh, and then on sunday uh, next week i will be also talking with elijah who is a former minister government minister of lebanon to talk about the levant and the impacts of the ukrainian war on the that part of the middle east so we've got some interesting things coming up uh, as well but um as always you can find the podcast on any of your utilized podcast things and i also want to give a big shout out to my patreons uh, like Guta hegarty who make this uh, this whole podcast possible so thank you very much everybody take care and see you in the next episode of the global gambit you were listening to the global gambit we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did subscribe and leave us a review we would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash theglobalgambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host, Piotta. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.